from the National Race and Capitalism Project, welcome to New Dawn, the podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. Inez Valdez is Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of Latina Latino Studies Program at Ohio State University. Her research is on critical race and feminist theory, capitalism, and empire. Her work has appeared in the American Political Science Review and Theory and Event, among other outlets. Her book, Transnational Cosmopolitanism, Count, Du Bois, and Justice as a Political Craft, was published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press and received the Sussex International Theory Prize in 2020. Valdez has received fellowships from the European University Institute, the Princeton University Center for Human Values, the Humboldt Foundation, and the Global Arts and Humanities Society of Fellows at Ohio State. And yes, it's a pleasure to have you join us on New Dawn and Alfredo. It's time that you came out from under the shadows. Our producer is joining us as a co-host today. Pleasure to have this three-way conversation, the important work that Ines has been doing. I think I want to start off by talking about the relationship that you've written about between racial capitalism, immigration, and empire. How did what you call the entanglements of socialist and imperial discourses get appropriated by white workers in the British colonies and U.S. and I guess to the U.K. as well? Mm-hmm. So first, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here and to have the opportunity to talk with you and Alfredo. And yeah, I mean, and also kind of have this dialogue where we can kind of get immigration into the conversation of, about race and, uh, and capitalism. So that paper on socialism and empire was really kind of a really, really exciting kind of project to write. And it is mostly because I started thinking about imperial mobilities as an aspect of empire that had not been explored by the literature and the political theory of empire. And this comes from my longstanding interest and in writing on migration, which seems to make very short appearances in many literatures, but never kind of addressed as an imperial phenomenon. And so the way in which I kind of zeroed in in this relationship between the very violent and exclusionary encounters between flowing populations from Europe as well in the period that I cover, uh, India and China flocking into British settler colonies, it was, it was really, I mean, it was I mean, quite a discovery in the sense that first we tend to think about the exclusion, uh, in particular in the U.S. with the, the Quora Law and the previous Chinese exclusion acts that start you know, coming out at the state level, at the level of states and at the national level since the end of the 19th century. We tend to think about this as such national phenomena. And what I, I saw, and then when I went to the British Library to look at the imperial bureaucracy papers, and in particular the exchanges between colonial governors in the self-governing colonies and the Secretary of State for India in, in London, what I saw is, is that these were efforts within empire to deal with these different flows of, of labor, really, because this is not to say that you know, European, Europeans that were leaving Europe, they were, I mean, escaping poverty, all kinds of punitive poor laws in England and other places. And so these flows of labor and then the way in which they sought to make sense of 
which status would be granted to each of these groups. I think what was fascinating for me is to see how the language of self-government figures so prominently in thinking about why white workers get to constitute themselves as a collective and legitimately demand inclusion while requesting the exclusion of predominantly in, in, in these debates, Chinese and, and, and Indian labor. And so this happened in Canada, in Australia, in South Africa a bit later. This was after the Second World War, as well as in the US. And so what I think is quite important, I mean, and now that I'm working on the, on the broader manuscript, is the way in which I think migration is really this world historical force that reorganizes systems of labor control, but also kind of shapes these emerging notions of self-government and popular sovereignty, in fact, in, in settled colonies. And so just to make two more connections there, I mean, one of them is the way in which in this reading, I see very clearly how European migration, migration is part of the project of settler colonialism in the sense that it is part of the project of populating the lands that were, I mean, from which indigenous populations were dispossessed. And as a settler project, it had to be a racially shaped admission. And so this is where I kind of, I come to see as this very early forms of immigration control emerging in the white settler colonies and the U.S., which remains a settler colony, it's no longer part of the British Empire formally, as really kind of part and parcel of the settler regimes. Uh, one aspect of the regimes of migration, the imperial regimes of, of migration you talk about, in particular the aspect of self-governance, is how some of the struggles for democracy on the part of white workers in both the United Kingdom and I guess to the same degree just in the settler colonies are also tied to discourses of race and empire. Can you say more about that and, and particularly to what degree did racialization feed into their identity and into their class consciousness, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And that reminds me that you mentioned the UK working class, and I didn't really mention that in my first answer, but that is also, also quite interesting in the sense that it is this imagination of the potential for migration and settlement in these colonies and the potential of access to, to wealth. I mean, of course, there is gold being discovered all around the British settler world, the US and Canada, as well as South Africa. So just to add to the previous answer, definitely the British working class is, is added to this perspective. Now, in terms of how these discourses of self-governance and democratic inclusion involve discourses of race and empire and participate in a process of racialization, I think it's quite interesting the way in which, because these flows and these debates are taking place after the abolition of slavery in the British empire, there is a way in which abolitionist discourse and critiques of the horrid labor conditions in indenture programs and other forms of exploitation of Chinese labor in South Africa, for example, it's quite interesting how this abolitionist discourse becomes entangled with these discourses of protection of white workers. And so abolitionist discourse criticizes the slavery-like conditions of, for example, Chinese labor in South Africa. The discourses of race come into the picture by arguing that the particular labor conditions and the particular very frugal living conditions that certain uh, non-white workers can accept are simply too much below the level of what white workers kind of require. So white workers require this particularly in the 19th century, this idea of the, of the living wage. But 
there is a discourse of race there that is doing the work of differentiating which kinds of labor conditions and which kinds of, of wages are owed to, to different groups. And so you have abolitionist critiques of labor conditions and then the white working class kind of adopting these critiques of that labor, but only in order to claim their difference from these exploited workers and to claim that their dignity would be diminished by having to compete with such frugal laborers. So that's kind of the, 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 the racial discourse. And I think that the imperial discourse appears in the way in which there is an entitlement to that land and to certain jobs as well as labor conditions. Right? And so this is where settler colonial, you really see settler colonialism logics doing their work. It is not an entitlement that applies to migrants. It's an entitlement that applies to white subjects settling these colonies. That is quite interesting and also associated with these world historical discourses of the West being under threat by, by the growth of China and by the increasing kind of spread of Chinese populations into different areas of the globe. So, of course, Malaysia and Singapore appear in this moment. And the fear is that, you know, these flows will just overwhelm Western superiority. And so the, the settler logic, as well as the discourse of threat, reappears in working class discourse as kind of creating a demand and an and entitlement to, to land and, and to work that is only for, for white workers. Hi, Ines. I, I really enjoyed socialism and empire, what we're talking about right now. And, and what is really important about this piece is your focus on mobility and, and how you make that one of the most critical concepts to then bring in the conversation of immigration. And so you highlight how the federal system facilitated the exploitation of non-white workers' mobility. So how do you come to interpret that state mechanisms racially segregate and control labor instead of making claims to state sovereignty? So I'm not sure that I kind of, I mean, get to that specifically. So, I mean, I'm kind of, you know, thinking kind of afresh here. So, I mean, what is interesting in the case of the U.S. in particular, but this is actually also the case in, in, in South Africa, in the sense that the several colonies of South Africa had quite, I mean, quite different approaches that, and actually one of the big conflicts was when the Union of South Africa was created to kind of bring this to accord with each other. But in the case of the U.S., what is quite interesting is that you can really speak of different racial regimes. And that is, I mean, that is just geopolitics in the sense that the relative proximity of the West Coast and for it to be the port of arrival for most migration from, I mean, subsequently, but and Japanese migration as well as Chinese migration. Of course, the Southwest being, you know, formerly or Mexican territory. And so what I think is quite interesting about the U.S. when it comes to mobility is that even once we think of the U.S. as kind of one node in this transnational set of imperial forces and imperial mobility that I'm describing, once you get into, I mean, you think about the U.S. as a territory, you then have to, again, kind of relativize the claims depending on what areas you are talking about. And I think that the the way in which the national state really kind of gives states a free hand, I mean, this has 
a lot to do with the way in which historically the regulation of, of migration was a state function. And, and also the way in which in this period, many of the, I mean, I, I haven't done so much research there, but the way in which different forms of local and state laws differ when it came to voting rights even, right? I mean, what I would say here is that you need to think about both white working class organizers as well as particular racial formations as taking, uh, taking shape in space. And this means that, for example, if you think about the northwest of the U.S., the connections here were very kind of very close with Canadians, you know, white workers in the southwest of Canada. And this was quite different from thinking about racial formations in the southwest. To put it in a different way, I think in this moment, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, I mean, we see kind of two things happening. First, kind of, you know, world-level flows that are kind of transforming British settler colonies. And at the same time that at the local level, I mean, of course, there were several colonies as well as in Australia, there were kind of particularly particular ways in which these flows were dealt with. And in the case of the US, this also meant quite different demographics and quite different sets of hierarchical race relations, quite different legacies from the antebellum era as well. So I guess your question is really pushing me to think about how I'm, you know, I'm thinking of this side, the way in which, you know, this global imperial set of labor flows kind of lands in particular areas and transforms and shapes self notions of self-government. But you're really pushing me to think about how, in turn, the different landing ground for, for these arrivals, for these flows, also creates quite, quite different ways of regulating race and work in these places. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because what you're describing is what was happening in the Southwest during the Bracero program, mm -hmm. where the different states like Texas and Arizona were actually engaging with the Mexican government on their own, besides the U.S. government trying to make these deals and negotiating how these labor flows were, were going to be between Mexican nationals and, and the laborers coming to the U.S.? Yes, that's, that's actually an excellent question because, I mean, and this is why I, li I like the work of Kelly Light Hernandez. She has this book, I think from 2000 and I want to say 16 or 17, Migra. And, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, and precisely what she's looking at is the way in which there was a period in which relationships with Mexico and even border policy was very much up to the growers, right? And so this was, you know, local governments responding to pressures from, from, from growers. I mean, and we see some of those legacies in, in today's immigration politics, right? I mean, you see California Proposition 194, you see Arizona SB 1070. So you see this still internal political dynamics really, you know, then having very much national reverberations, but nonetheless, emerging from particular political conjunctures. And one more thing that I would say, so the, another chapter in the manuscript that is still a draft is looking at the question of, so it looks at, at the Brazilian program as one particular form of labor subjection that in a way is not continuous in the sense of being similar, but it is continuous in the sense of facilitating labor control in the way that, you know, post-Bracero, 
the way of, of facilitating labor control has become undocumented migration with mass surveillance, detention and deportation. And the same way in which before the Bracero program, there were these few Bracero programs, I mean, in the 1920s, I mean, the First World War. But I think, I mean, going all the way back to, to the annexation of Mexican territory as one other kind of way of, I mean, appropriating land, settling land, displacing Mexicanos, not in the, I mean, being displaced into kind of a very vulnerable labor force subject to expropriation, right? And so my effort is precisely to, after thinking about socialism and empire, where I think mostly about migrants coming from farther away, I try to think how the regime of labor established between the U.S. and Mexico fits in this puzzle, so to speak. Where I am at right now, at this, at this stage of the, of the writing, I think that we really need to think about these different forms of subjection as at least one of the roles being facilitating the control of Mexican labor in U.S. land. You talk about the circulation of labor, but you also in, uh, talk about the circulation of ideals. So one of the players that you talk about are intellectual elites. What role do they play in the UK, and to what degree is there a discourse between intellectual elites in the settler colonies and the metropole in the US? That's a, that's a really super interesting question. I still have to read, actually, Dan Campbell's, I forget now, it's Dreamscapes of Empire, which basically looks at, at some of this. But what I did look at in the Socialism and Empire piece, and to some extent, I mean, I do that as well in the kind of previous chapter to that Socialism and Empire he's thinking about in terms of the manuscript, is the way that it's not only that there are exchanges, but also that some of these intellectuals are simply intellectuals that are British and move into the settler colonies. So the, I guess the main character in the Socialism and Empire piece is Charles Pearson, who writes Na- National Life and Character, it's called A Forecast. And so he is an Oxford educating historian. He had been a professor in King's College, but he migrates to Australia partly, if I remember correctly, because of health reasons. And once, I mean, he is in Australia, and so he observes first the growth in Chinese migration, but also the exchanges between some of the, the governors in Australia and China. And so he comes to see China as an actor and as a political actor in ways that perhaps he couldn't have done while in England. What's interesting about this book, National Life and Character, is that on the one hand, for the first time, in, it grants agency to non-Western peoples, on the other hand, it's in the worst possible way, in the sense that the agency becomes this threat to the dominance of the West. So the first thing to say would be that it's not just exchanges, but actual travel. That means that British intellectuals not, do, not stay, do not always stay put in place. The other intellectual that I look at in Socialism and Empire is Henry Hinman. And Hinman is a labor intellectual, and he who was an very important figure in the Marxist movement and dominated the 1880s Social Democratic Federation, which was the forerunner of the Communist Party in England. And here you see that he is not only very engaged with, the, I mean, with this threat, as, you know, as it comes to be defined, uh, the growth in Chinese power and their circulation. And so he publishes this book, The Awakening of Asia. He, I mean, an English labor intellectual publishes a book on Asia, right? So that already tells you something about how this how global these discourses were. The kinds of exchanges that you see Hinman participate in is, are basically just socialist circles. I mean, international, socialist international circles. And I mean, I haven't been able to 
to follow that thread. And I would like to follow that thread because some of what Hinman says makes me think that, that there is pushback against his kind of anti-Chinese position. So, I mean, I, I have all of these proceedings of, of international socialist meetings that, you know, I have filed in a folder and I haven't, I haven't, I haven't had the time to, to look at them. But in any case, Hinman's take is, yes, of course, what we're aiming for is cooperative form of organizing economic relations, but we are not yet there. And to the extent that we are not yet there, and we are in a capitalist system where that is ruled by competition, we cannot accept the, the admission of these frugal workers, you know, these very racialized frugal workers that will undersell white workers. And importantly, Hinman I mean, is in conversation with working class leaders in the US and Australia. And he's actually discussing both of these countries specifically in his book. And this is where I, I really make the emphasis in that piece. We're not talking about white American workers or white Australian workers. We are talking about white workers. Many of these workers are foreigners and, I mean, in particular, British. I mean, so what, what's quite striking, right, is that this is not about white American workers or white Australian workers. This is about white workers, many of whom are, are foreigners. So Gompers being one prime example of an English leader who is a leader of the white working class in the US. And so I think that in Hinman's writings, you see this very clearly, the way in which these conversations are conversations across the settler colonies. And, and that, I think, I mean, there's fantastic work really in history about precisely this, these connections, not just between intellectuals, but between the, the working class itself. So activists, I mean, Canada and the U.S. very clearly because they are territorially connected to each other, but but even outside Canada and uh, and the U.S. So you know, to, to return to to Duncan Bell's work, I mean, he is very concerned with these elite exchanges, but I think it's quite important to highlight that these connections are happening at the intellectual elite level among liberals, also among socialists, but also very much at the grassroots level. There is a common working class imagination that is capturing white working classes in, in the settler colonies. And then to the extent that these are the protagonists of anti-capitalist struggles in these periods, I mean, of course, this is not an exclusive account in the sense that there were interracial coalitions and initiatives. There is a recent book that actually looks at some of these organizing during the Great Depression. But it, it is looking nonetheless at, at one important kind of chunk of what has for anti-capitalism, anti-capitalist organizing and critique that is happening in ways that are quite entangled with empire. When I was reading the, the articles and some of our other conversations, We've already talked about parallels between, as Alfredo talked about, the Bracero program in the period that you're writing about. What are some of the parallels with what we see in migration politics and racial politics today? So, I mean, one of the things that I don't get to develop a lot in the piece, but that I, I mean, it's, it's quite an important part of kind of my, my thinking, and it's still kind of very much in, in development, but the way in which migration politics is just one bit of racial politics, right? And so by this, I mean that when we think about immigration restrictions, and of course, I mean, when I, when I mean immigration restrictions at the time, at the turn of the century, I don't mean immigration restrictions. I mean restrictions of non-white foreign subjects. 
as we talk about immigration later in the period, and particularly post-1965, where when race disappears, at least, I mean, of course, disappears from the text of the, of the law, my point here is that we need to see migration regulations as one particular tool that racial regimes use to sustain racial hierarchies and exploitation. And so I think this comes in, I mean, in particular bits and pieces in, in the piece. So one of them is the way in which the allowance of white migration and the exclusion of non-white migration connects with settler colonialism. But the other side is the way in which many of the restrictions imposed on non-white migrants mirrored the restrictions that existed towards black workers in the U.S. as well as in the case of South Africa and, and Australia. The restrictions imposed on, in the case of South Africa, for example, Indian migrants were kind of echoed the restrictions on mobility and access to, to particular jobs that were established against both Indians who were residents in South Africa as well as, as African natives. And so I think that that is quite an important point to highlight because of the way in which the literatures have developed both in political science as well as in history, right? I mean, migration history is separate from kind of, you know, broader, I mean, accounts of black history. But, and so, and I mean, I'm, I'm definitely thinking about indigenous work on indigenous political thought as well as, as history. And so I think that that is a really important kind of insight that, that comes out of, of, of this work. I mean, the way in which you see these techniques of restricted mobility, techniques of vulnerable labor, techniques of exclusion from particular jobs, as well as unions. I mean, these are all operating against people of color generally, I mean, in quite different ways, I mean, and, and kind of emerging from quite different institutional and, and, and structural legacies. But nonetheless, I think we would gain by, by seeing migration as this kind of piece of, of racial regimes rather than as something else having to do with citizenship status or, or national origins. So that would be one thing. And I mean, moving into the present, I think something that I tr I've tried to do in my work is thinking critically about this literature on the criminalization of migrants. And I mean, and this is not to say that, I mean, thinking critically about this literature is, does not mean to say that migrants are not criminalized, but rather to think harder about what the criminalization of migrants means and what the appropriate response should be. And so let me expand on that. What I mean is that to the extent that we are contesting the criminalization of, of migrants, we are engaging in an, in kind of some work of separation, right? We want to say, look, these are migrants. These are not, these belong to the realm of civil law, um, the way in which they are being detained and deported is kind of more proper of punishment. And this is the realm of criminal law. And this is just separate. And so we should kind of return migration into the civil realm, dismantle punitive measures such as detention and deportation. And, you know, not always, but sometimes this comes attached with the way in which criminalization relies on, on these narratives of good and bad uh, and, and bad migrant, right? And so my effort there is to not push against the criminalization in a more expansive way, in, in the sense of think about criminalization as a tool of choice for racially regulating mobility and, I mean, in general, freedom and access to well-being by racialized populations. 
And so understanding the extension of criminalization to migrants as part of this process. And when we contest that criminalization, we want to contest criminalization writ large as utilized against racialized populations, rather than try to move migration back to the civil realm. You talk a lot about this contemporary aspect of immigration in your American Political Science Review piece, Reconceiving Immigration Politics, which is not necessarily a different way of looking at how other folks have have talked about immigration politics, but but I think it's a a different dimension because to reduce it to being its opposition means that that we're reducing the conversation to to these two poles and and I don't want to do that. I think you're giving us a fresh interpretation of immigration politics, especially after the Trump era, but more so immigration politics after the post 9/11 era where we were at one point getting close to some type of comprehensive immigration reform. After the events of 9/11, we get even more immigration enforcement. I think that your piece is speaking to all of these different aspects of immigration enforcement and control. And in particular, you engage the work of Walter Benjamin here and his concept of a real state of exception. How does Walter Benjamin help us focus on the idea that we should start with the impacts of violence on immigrants as something that is proportionate by the state. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, yeah, the, I mean, I think that is the crucial kind of starting point for the piece, precisely, right? To look at the violence and rather to condemn it as disproportionate or outrageous, to consider for a minute that it is proportional and then think about what might be behind it that makes this investment of state resources and display of violence kind of appropriate, right? And I think that that comes out, I mean, that came out of a, of a frustration of the way in which we think about immigration. And I think, to, I mean, to some extent, we continue to think about migration, I mean, right now, post-Trump, and it's this this condemnation that contains in the condemnation. It's it's not really an an, an apology, but it's really a claim that there is such a thing as rule of law bound way of dealing with immigrants, which would be through establishing immigrant rights and through reforming the immigration system through these comprehensive immigration reforms that you mentioned, and so this kind of rule-bound account that is in the background when people talk about the outrageous ways in which immigrants have been surveilled and detained and deported is really what I, what I want to get at. And Walter Benjamin's idea of the real state of exception is quite, quite helpful here because he wants to precisely bring law in, but not as a source of safety, but rather as what we should be looking in terms of the work that it performs in society. And, and so what I get from, uh, from this notion in Benjamin is that you need to look at law, not understood as written law, but rather as, you know, look at written law as kind of this authorization for the proliferation of violence in society. And so it is this proliferation of violence that ultimately gives content to the law. And 
I mean, some of this I also do in my work with Amna Akbar and, and Matt Coleman, right? I mean, this idea that oftentimes critical legal scholars tend to think about the racialization of the law as being somewhat found in the way in which we discuss law or, you know, politicians discuss law. So, you know, they track these public debates and they, they look for dog whistles and they look for racialized narratives and they say, see, the law is neutral, but you see in these debates the way in which it's racialized. And I think that there is a case for also looking at the violence itself as kind of the way in which the law is given racial content. So the way in which the law authorizes violence, the violence then exceeds what the law authorizes, but nonetheless exposed, we see the law in a way kind of covering up for these violent actions. And so I think that once we start thinking in in this way about immigration enforcement, and in particular the post-9-11 regime, the way in which surveillance has has become really an internal police, an internal immigration police operating, you know, breaking into houses uh, at dawn or relying on spectacular raids in small towns with immigrant-heavy industries. It is this performance of violence that I think is quite important to to understand as the, the racialization, where the racialization of the law occurs. But you ask about the real state of exception. So the real state of exception actually responds to this outrage, which is to say, and Benjamin is referring in particular to critics of the death penalty. And so what he wants to say is, well, that is not exceptional. The, you know, the, the state always reserves violence for particular populations, right? And, and here, I mean, I think I clearly depart from some interpretations of the state of exception that think about it as more generalized. I think there's in Benjamin an effort to single out particular groups as targets of state violence. And this this violence is generalized historically, but is by no by no means generalized at any given time within society. So that's one thing. But then his move, and here he's engaging with Marx's writing about the general strike, in particular Bruno Bauer. So for him, the real state of exception, and I think, I mean, to some extent, he is thinking also in in Weberian terms about coercion. So the real state of exception is when you see violence or or a threat to to state-sanctioned law and violence coming from another actor in society. And this violence does not need to be physical violence, but it needs to be that moment in which this very well-rehearsed kind of pantomime of the law being kind of a source of stability and order when this pantomime and when this myth is pierced. And so that for Benjamin is the real state of exception. And it is labor as an actor that for him can kind of make this threatening move against the state. So what Benjamin is really helpful to to think about is those moments in which we address the problem of migration and we don't do them by following this kind of very well-rehearsed narratives, right? The question of Immigrants are not criminals. We should just respect immigrants' rights and the immigration system is broken, right? I mean, this idea that there is a legal fix to all of these problems. And one of those such voices, I think, is the way in which the coalition of Immokali workers, but I mean, also other kind of labor-based organizing that really kind of move the focus into labor itself. Move the focus to say, well, I mean, whatever this immigration regime is and whatever this immigration regime doesn't work for, it works extremely well for facilitating 
kind of realms of, of uncontrolled exploitation, right? And so this, I, I, I mean, I term, I mean, of course, you know, it's, it's a limited move in the sense that this is one group working in Florida and, you know, they, they are sometimes criticized by the way in which it's such a small piece of, of what's happening, right? So they, you know, they sign a contract with Walmart and so Walmart now buys kind of fairly source, source tomatoes, but of course, you know, Walmart is one of the prime Kind of offenders when it comes to labor rights and you know so th- just you know with that caveat nonetheless the way in which a predominantly migrant organization such as the coalition of immokali workers nonetheless decides to engage directly in terms of labor exploitation i think is one of those moments in which the idea is all about kind of respecting certain rights and reforming certain laws kind of comes more more clearly into the picture and what you were just talking about reminds me of the move that Iris Marion Young makes between going from identity politics to looking at it from a structural oppression perspective. And Ray Rocco makes that move as well. In that piece in particular, you're saying that violence is the mechanism and the outcome of immigration enforcement in the U.S. You're trying to tell us and show us how violence is actually navigating all of these spaces instead of it just being the outcome. And so this departs from what you were saying that from other Latinx political scholars in sociology, anthropology, and political science, you're basically saying that these folks are overemphasizing this idea of immigrant suffering. So where do you think Latinx political thought should take the study of immigration enforcement and politics instead? I mean, the first thing would be, I mean, I think, as I already hinted at, is to to think about migration in the context of racial regimes of oppression. And I think this is this is really what what was brought home by by the research on on the turn of the century, right? Because I mean, there you see this is not about immigration. This is about race. Kind of the takeaway point is, well, the present is also about race, not just migration. And the, the second point to make there, it's about labor. And I mean, there is in the work of Nicolas de Genova and Alfonso Gonzalez, of course, I mean, there is attention to labor, particularly in, in Nicolas de Genova's book, as well as in Alfonso Gonzalez's kind of mapping of the immigrants organizing, right? So I mean, he clearly kind of distinguishes between those who are grassroots, usually vulnerable workers and those who are kind of more mainstream and professionalized kinds of activism. But I think nonetheless, there is space for thinking more productively about about the violence in relation to the accumulation that it makes possible. So I guess centering capitalism and the way in which the regime of immigration enforcement has a role to play there. And that is not to say that that is the only thing that it does or that all migrants kind of perform the same sorts of roles within this regime or within, I mean, thinking about more, more in terms of the labor that they perform. I mean, you can think about how labor, migrant labor is, is gender, right? I mean, the, the way in which essential workers during the pandemic, predominantly thinking about health workers, were foreign brown women doing some of this work. So this is not to say that we can think about this, I mean, labor as enabled by the regime of immigration enforcement as, as, as one homogeneous whole. But it is nonetheless that we need to look at precisely 
that context and what are the heterogeneities and what is the work that, for instance, indigeneity is playing there, um, in particular with the extension of migration towards the Northern Triangle in, in Central America and, and the increasing numbers of indigenous peoples of Mayan uh, descent, particularly coming from, from Guatemala, or issues of gender, again, the way in which the Philippines is kind of a, a crucial source of, you know, mostly legal migration, but nonetheless highly vulnerable migrants in, in, the, in the health sector. So what I think is there is a need to first center on the violence and then from the, not for its own sake, but for the sake of connecting this violence to broader categories of racial violence on the one hand, and the second one, to think about how that violence operates vis-a-vis processes of accumulation and, and labor exploitation. And once we are in that kind of realm of inquiry, we can kind of do the work of understanding what the heterogeneities are within migration. I mean, one, one huge shift that has, uh, has happened is that Mexican migration is, I mean, is really kind of not growing, I think, for I, I recently heard heard the dates, but I mean, it is now mostly Central American migration that, that is replacing Mexican migration. And this is because of demographic changes in Mexico. I mean, the population is growing older and a different economic outlook, uh, not the one of the neoliberal reforms of the 1990s and NAFTA, but the situations of crisis are no longer kind of expelling labor. And so there are all of these kind of shifts that are super interesting to understand. Another Super interesting shift is the, sh- the shift from migration to, to refugees. And here the connection becomes no longer this past of you know, conquest and guesswork, but the connection becomes the U.S. interventions in support of authoritarian regimes in Central America in the 80s and, and 90s, right? Yeah, so I think that's where I would like that. I want to deprovincialize <laughs> immigration <laughs> in terms of thinking more broadly about race and about capitalism. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. That's an excellent place to end. And this has been a great conversation. There's a lot we didn't get to, but I'm sure this won't be the last time we have this conversation. Awesome. Um, thank you much. Thank you, Michael. Great. Thank, thank you, you, Alfredo, for these really excellent questions and for this conversation. I, I really enjoyed it and agree that definitely hope won't be the last. <laughs>